Okay, uh, so moving into the morning session, uh, we'll just move right into it, and uh, I'll introduce the first speaker. Uh, Peter Chin, uh, Chin Hong is a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. Uh, he's been involved in uh, the care and treatment of uh, immunosuppressed patients of various types. And he's going to talk to us on a topic that I think will be very interesting to everyone on uh, infections and other complications related to immunobiologics. Thanks so much, Ron, and <clears throat> thanks for having me here. Uh, how is everyone doing this morning? <clears throat> Braved all the traffic. I realize in LA people are sort of bounded by highways and freeways, and whenever I come to visit my friends here, they're always sort of mortified by the aspect of coming to visit me. <laughs> but I, I still love it nevertheless. It was really nice and warm yesterday, so a uh, great city, even though I'm from Northern California. So I'm going to talk about immunobiologics today. It's been um, uh, quite a journey preparing this talk because I realized I myself was somewhat, even though I use them, uh, and, and consult and patients uh, every day with them, uh, you know, they are somewhat daunting when you think about organizing them in a, in a scaffold in, in terms of uh, giving some structure to them. So hopefully by the end of this talk, you'll have that structure. Uh, these are my disclosures. So what I'm gonna do is really talk about some of the conditions in which we're using immunobiologics today in general and specifically focus on HIV-infected patients. Um, I wouldn't sp spend too much time on mechanism of action, but we'll briefly touch upon those in terms of how you talk to your patients about what they're taking. Um, finally, I'll talk about some of the infectious and other complications that patients get while taking these agents, and use cases from, real cases from around the world from my colleagues to illustrate some of these points. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about prevention and where we're going in the field. So. You know, first to really emphasize that HIV patients are living longer, as you know, the life expectancy of HIV infected patients is very similar to the general population. But I just wanted to show that uh, as individuals get older, that also means that they're going to have a higher uh, incidence of autoimmune disease as well as malignancy. But I wanted to pre present this sobering slide, which is showing that in the last two years, it's the first time that we've had a decline in life expectancy in the United States for the, um, you know, after decades. And of course, many of you know that's due to the opioid epidemic, but, uh, but as well to suicides as well. So of these uh, diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, vasculitis, Crohn's disease, psoriasis, lymphoma, melanoma, prostate cancer, lung cancer, and leukemia, who in the audience have had a patient with one of these things? Can you raise your hands? So that's pretty much everyone. So what I'll like to tell you is that if you've had a patient with one of these, it's most likely that you would have had come into contact with a immunobiologic or will in the future because these are becoming more widely used for a variety of uh, conditions that your patients have. And some of the oldest agents include TNF-alpha inhibitors. They include infliximab, adalimumab, and etanercept. Uh, uh, old agent rituximab, uh, used for malignancies, lymphoma, et cetera, is an anti-CD20 uh, agent. And checkpoint blockade agents and CAR T-cells are sort of the new vanguard in immunobiologics that I'll talk about. 
So when you see this array of drugs that you can't pronounce, and you'll see that all of us have problems pronouncing them uh, from time to time, it's kind of like a mishmash of alphabets. Um, I'd like to encourage you to put them in one of five boxes. So is your patient on a TNF-alpha inhibitor? Are they anti-CD20? And or are they, one of, are they taking one of these new agents, checkpoint blockade, CAR T cells? And the last box is everything else. So the everything else is also very important because that means you're going to probably just know the basics of what that means. Uh, and they comprise an array of different mechanisms of action. So what is a biologic? Well, it's any biologically derived product. It binds or interferes with a specific molecular target, and that could be monoclonal antibody receptor analogs or chimeric small molecules. Now the abbreviations that are placed at the end of the names tell you a little, about, little bit about the structure. So if it's CEPT, it refers to the fusion of the receptor to the FC part of human IgG. If it's a MAB, it indicates that it's a monoclonal antibody. If it's XMAB, it indicates a chimeric monoclonal antibody, and Zumab indicates a humanized monoclonal antibody. So at least it gives you some sort of um, structure to this otherwise mishmash of alphabets. When we think about immunosuppression, we think about it as a spectrum. And in my day-to-day -day work, what I do is I, I run the, or help run the immunocompromised host of infectious disease service at UCSF. And we see a wide array of patients with lots of different kinds of immunocompromised conditions. So on the top there, some of our most immunocompromised patients are those who have allo-BMTs. But you can see that there's a range. So organ transplant recipients, because of the immunosuppression we give them, autoimmune disease treatment and solid tumor treatment, which comprise the, the bulk of the patients who are on biologics as well as uh, congenital uh, immune deficiencies and hyposplenism. But when you put HIV on top of that, it makes it a little bit more complex because it's multidimensional. Because as you know, depending on the CD4 count, et cetera, an HIV patient, uh, infected patient, is at a particular point in time where he or she is at, at immunocompromised. So when you put HIV together with one of those other conditions, it can get kind of tricky in terms of knowing exactly where they fit in that axis. So the type of immune defect is related to the drugs that we use. So uh, in terms of humoral immunity, one of the drugs in, that I'm going to talk about, rituximab, uh, really affects that arm of the immune system. When we t think about innate immunity, those are sort of the regular cancer chemotherapy drugs, uh, chronic granulomatous disease, uh, mainly neutrophils is what we're talking about. And cell-mediated immunity, including HIV-infected patients, also overlap with a lot of mechanisms of action of the biologics, including TNF-alpha inhibitors and many other biologics that you'll encounter. So how is this different from HIV immunosuppressed patients? Well, in non-HIV, like allo-VMTs or transplant patients, it's, it's uh, very heterogeneous. As opposed to in HIV, we know that the immune defect is related to the death of CD4 T cells. So that means that it's very tricky to know when we have to put people on opportunistic infection uh, prophylaxis. With HIV-infected patients, you know, we've had multiple years of well-conducted randomized control trials looking at this very question. But in terms of the other immunosuppressed patients, it, and, and you'd see from some of the data that I will show, the lack of data, 
it, it can be very uh, daunting. And there, is, there aren't a lot of guidelines because there isn't a lot of data. And people haven't really, to this point, pooled some of their experiences. So there are no reliable CD4 count of the other immunosuppressed patients. So let's launch straight into the cases. And I think these will illustrate some of the points that I'm trying to make. So this case comes from Boston, from my friend and colleague, Camille Cotton. It's a 56-year-old woman with HIV, CD4 count of 360, viral load of uh, undetectable with Crohn's disease, managed with infliximab and 6-mercaptopurine. She presents to the emergency department complaining of shortness of breath for three weeks. What else do you want to know? So this part of the talk, it's actually going to be peer-shared. So you're going to turn to the person next to you, say hello, ask them what they had for breakfast, and then uh, Think of yourself as an infectious disease doctor or in your practice. What else do you want to know uh, from this patient when she's coming to see you? So this is the point where you turn to each other and say hello. <laughs> and I'll give you like a couple minutes. And then we'll have brisk audience participation. Okay, uh, any volunteers? You can just put up your hand. We're doing uh, audience response system the old-fashioned way in this talk. So I just wanted you guys to wake up a little bit and say hi to your neighbors. So any uh, thoughts about what else you want to know from this patient? Uh, coming with, in with a cough, but she's on a biologic, she's HIV infected, and it's going, been going on for three weeks. Travel history, I like that. Anything else? Fever. Fever, some vital signs. Other, other thoughts? Weight loss. Weight loss, constitutional signs. Anything else? So what else do? Lab results. Lab results, so we'll get some labs as well. Did she have a positive eye So great, so assessing TB risk, that's really good because she's on a TNF alpha inhibitor and we'll get to that in a second. So the other things, of course, as ID docs would do is probe really into not only travel history, but uh, activities around travel, pets. Um, you'd be surprised what kind of information we get. You know, like uh, sometimes I've had patients who admit to using the same toothbrush as their dog, and uh, you know, we get infectious disease risks in lots of really weird eating lunch, where raccoons hang out under the house. I mean, there are lots of uh, weird things that you can find out. So in this particular patient, um, she was PPD negative. Uh, so the rheumatologist did a good job of trying to assess that uh, risk. She lives in New York, uh, and she came back four weeks ago from a trip to Puerto Rico where she visited family and helped with the property cleanup after the hurricane. So um, uh, what do you check next? So we, people can just call out answers in terms of uh, what are you gonna check next uh, with this person? What's that? Urine histoantigen, like that. Anything else? Chest x-ray, chest CT scan. 
So a lot of times in immunocompromised patients, we would start with a chest X-ray, but we wouldn't stop there. We actually would go straight on to the chest CT scan uh, afterwards, given some of the things that can go on there. So, great, speed of AFBs. Uh, so, so a lot of uh, good information here. So she had all of that done, but at the end of the day, she got a chest X-ray. It showed some vague infiltrates, so they went straight on to the CT scan. And, and uh, showed these very symmetri symmetric uh, nodules that were diffuse uh, all over the lung fields. And uh, the urine histoplasma antigen was positive, and, and the diagnosis was acute histoplasmosis. So, acute his so histoplasmosis is not only in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valley that we learned uh, for USMLE step one uh, boards questions, but actually it's much more widespread. Even in California, we've had one or two cases, even though COXI is a the endemic fungus that we worry about most uh, in, in these parts, but uh, histo is actually more widespread, but particularly there's a focus in the middle of the country as well as in the Caribbean and, Latin, and Central America in particular. So we think about TB mainly when we think about TNF-alpha inhibitors. In fact, in a post-marketing survey of TB cases following the release of infliximab between 98 and 2001, there were 70 cases of TB with a median time to diagnosis of 12 weeks, so not immediately uh, diagnosed or occurring. A lot of these, these, these opportunistic infections, they don't occur immediately after starting the drug, so they take you know, months, if not years, sometimes to manifest. The weird thing about the TB with TNF-alpha inhibitors is that much of the TB was extrapulmonary, so it wasn't the classic sort of lung disease, but a lot of nodal disease, um, uh, hepatic disease, lots of other places where TB can hang out. But when we think about endemic mycoses, it sometimes falls under the radar in TNF-alpha inhibitors. But in this particular survey done by Kevin Winthrop and others from Oregon, they did a survey of a serious infections on TNF-alpha inhibitors in the U.S. And, you know, TB, were, there were 32 cases of TB, uh, 17 cases of TB. Non-tuberculous mycobacteria are also represented with 32 cases, but look at histoplasmosis, 56 cases in that particular study. In fact, in 2008, the FDA issued an alert um, uh, talking about 256 cases of histoplasmosis in patients on TNF-alpha inhibitors. And you can see the blue, the, the, the blue where histoplasmosis is really represented, as well as in the Caribbean where this, where this patient went uh, and helped with the property cleanup. Uh, other endemic mycoses include um, COXI, as you know, in, in, in California, uh, Arizona, Central Valley in particular, and emerging uh, endemic mycosis, or emerging fungus, actually, is uh, Cryptococcus gadii. started in the northwest and moving down. Next case, uh, this case comes from a colleague at the University of Hong Kong. 42-year-old male with Crohn's disease for three years started on infliximab, so the same TNF-alpha in, uh, inhibitor, after persistent diarrhea for five months prior. So he was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Uh, he was admitted with three weeks shortness of breath, so again, very subacute presentation. Low-grade temps, dry cough, no help with amoxicillin for weeks. So in Hong Kong, <clears throat> as in many parts of Europe, for community-acquired pneumonia in coverage, they give uh, beta-lactams, uh, amoxicillin, which this patient got, had no relief. So turn to the same neighbor, and uh, you guys come up with uh, one or two things that you think might be going on in this particular case. I would say this is December uh, in Hong Kong. 
coming in with three weeks shortness of breath. So this patient is not known to be HIV infected. Any thoughts from the audience? Maybe somebody from the back of the room? I've heard anything. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> In this room, anyway. TB. So some good reinforcement of the first case. Other thoughts? Influenza. Influenza. It's December in Hong Kong. Hotbed of all sorts of respiratory viruses. Penicillium. I like that. Connie is bringing up penicillium marnefii. Of course, a, a well-known optistic infection. A, a dimorphic fungus from Southeast Asia. If it was HIV, you'd think about pneumocystis. So really good, uh, sophisticated uh, differential diagnosis from the group. You see what we get from crowdsourcing is a quite a good differential diagnosis. So uh, in terms of that, uh, the diagnostic tests that the group sent were based on the differential diagnosis that you came up with. So sputum AFB negative times three, sputum uh, AFB culture is negative, respiratory virus PCR was negative, chest x-ray was abnormal, went to the chest CT scan, showed ground glass opacities. That prompted the team to send, do a BAL DFA, which was positive for pneumocystis. Uh, did an HIV test, which was antibody positive, with a diagnosis of pneumocystis pneumonia. So the patient had undiagnosed HIV, was uh, diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and given infliximab, and then uh, had a, a presentation consistent with PCP pneumonia. So he's treated with clindoprimaquine, he was septuorallergic, and started on, on antiretroviral therapy. Um, so one of the other interesting cases, uh, points of this case is that the CD4 count of the patient was in the 300, suggesting that there was some synergy, even though not reported, between the fact, uh, between the HIV infection as well as uh, uh, being on the TNF-alpha inhibitor. And I think one of the uh, points that we are trying to, we are learning from these cases, as I hear uh, cases from around the, around the country, is that oftentimes when rheumatologists, or particularly dermatologists, are starting these uh, biologics, they're not necessarily thinking about overall risk. So there have been some diagnoses of HIV infection after the fact, uh, in terms of uh, after starting on these agents, when people present with uh, opportunistic infections or other, even uh, community-acquired pneumonia that seems disproportionately severe. This is a, a case from UCSF, a 74-year-old uh, HIV uninfected man with interstitial lung disease and chronic uh, lymphocytic leukemia on a biologic, uh, admitted with progressive shortness of breath and exertion and dry cough for a month. Again, he was diagnosed with PCP. This was HIV negative in, in this particular case, uh, but on this particular biologic, uh, idealalacid uh, for CL CLL, uh, he presented with uh, PCP. When you look at the data around this particular biologic, uh, there is a signal with PCP. Uh, in fact, in retrospective analysis of over 2,000 patients with relapsed CLL uh, or NHL, 
on this particular biologic agent and co-therapy with rituximab, uh, there was a relative risk of PCP of 12.5 with a median time to PCP of 141 days. Yet there's no standard PCP prophylaxis guideline with this particular biologic agent, attesting to the fact that I think uh, people are still, um, you know, not really putting all the dots together in terms of guidance to the uh, medical community and biologics. Another case is, again comes from Camille from Boston, MGH, 69-year-old HIV-negative woman with low-grade lymphoma treated only with rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 uh, agent. Uh, months after treatment, developed slowly progressive mental status changes. CSF was PCR positive for GC virus, and MRI was consistent with PML. Diagnosed with uh, PML, a very typical uh, MRI finding. A very, you know, unexpected uh, host. When you look at it on the surface, we usually think about PML with another biologic, natalizumab, but not necessarily with rituximab. Although there is, uh, when you look at the data quite a number of PML cases uh, on patients with rituximab. So those were some of the, uh, we've talked so far about fungal uh, infections, optimistic infections uh, on these biologic agents. What about viral infections and biologics? Well, there's a well-known uh, uh, incidence of hepatitis B reactivation on biologics, um, particularly as well as rituximab. But of course, a classic group is uh, TNF-alpha inhibitors. And JC virus, uh, like, like that last case, is also uh, highly represented in, well, disproportionately represented in patients on certain types of biologics. Uh, we talked about both rituximab, like in that case, as well as natalizumab. In natalizumab, uh, which is used for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, uh, there, you know, there was su such dramatic cases that the guidance is that uh, providers must check a JC virus IgG prior to the administration of natalizumab. If it's positive, that's a contraindication for natalizumab, but there's no such guidance around rituximab, even though there have been cases of PML with rituximab. In fact, last week I got an uh, email from one of my colleagues asking about a uh, related agent to natalizumab where there was no contraindication on, in the package insert on, on, on JC virus IgG being a contraindication, but there were already some case reports of it being present. So we weighed the pros and benefits. Uh, her family friend who needed to be on treatment for MS didn't really need it immediately. So given the fact that there's a lag in guidelines compared to data, we elected to not uh, put her family friend or recommend that a family friend go on that related agent to nandalizumab, even though there's no specific guidance around that in PML. And varicella zoster virus, again, is a sleeping giant in terms of uh, disease incidence, higher disease incidence seen with biologics. It's just, that, it's just that many patients have them. We don't normally put the two and two together and, and associate it with uh, biologics, but there's certainly an uptick in VZV as well, which means that when I think when we think about patients going on biologics, we have to only also think about, you know, making sure that they're up to date on, on, on zoster immunization, zoster, assessing zoster risk, and, and seeing them as they go on uh, throughout their course. So what, what is the new frontier of biologics? Uh, I think uh, immunotherapy for malignancies is, is probably 
something you've been seeing in the news a lot, uh, but it's not a new uh, paradigm. This was a case from the late 1800s in New York City from a surgeon called uh, William Coley, who noticed that his patient with sarcoma, and you can see in panel A, patient has a, he took a photograph of the patient with sarcoma. He got this bacterial infection, uh, a skin and soft tissue infection, I believe, and noticed that his sarcoma was essentially melting away. William Coley tried to be very entrepreneurial about this and uh, sort of looked at his patients with other types of skin and soft tissue infections, got some serum from this and mark, tried to market this sort of um, cocktail of, of serum and administered it even to other patients, which would obviously not uh, fly by CHR, IRB these days. But none of it, unfortunately, was successful. But nevertheless, this was the first case of immu cancer immunotherapy. But most recently, of course, Jimmy Carter has been the poster child of one of the new class of, of drugs called checkpoint blockade inhibitors. And essentially, Jimmy Carter had metastatic melanoma to his brain, and that is basically associated with 100% mortality usually. But Jimmy Carter, using these checkpoint blockade inhibitors, was able to go into complete remission. And of course, uh, Lena Gandhi is Raj's sister. Raj is going to speak later on in the course. It, uh, the smarts run in this family. She's also published recently uh, one, on use of those checkpoint blockade inhibitors for another kind of malignancy. Uh, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. So they've been, be, they've been investigated in many, many different kinds of malignancies. Uh, certainly you'll be hearing about it more than just in the news and, and your patients may be on them soon. This whole field started in Northern California actually. Jim Allison was at UC Berkeley when he did some of the seminal work in uh, checkpoint blockade inhibitors and actually won the Nobel Prize for Medicine last year for his work. Uh, what they do, what we normally have is a, a check against an overactive immune system. So what the checkpoint blockade inhibitors do is exploit that overactive immune system, not only in terms of infections, but also in terms of malignancies by releasing the brakes somewhat. But what happens when you release the brakes is that you can have an overactive immune system on the other hand. So it's sometimes really hard to get that balance. <clears throat> so although you target uh, the immune system, and it's not a specific anti-cancer drug, uh, that may lead to other outcomes associated with an overactive immune system as well, and that includes uh, autoimmune disease, uh, uh, hair pigmentation, for example, like in these mice done in some of the early studies, where you can see that uh, they not only had deep pigmentation uh, of, the, of the hair, but also of the skin as well. And, and autoimmune diseases have been widely reported. So the infection risk may increase as we treat the overactive immune system with some of these, these other agents we talked about earlier, like TNF-alpha inhibitors. So that's what, what increases the infectious diseases risk in, in terms of checkpoint blockade inhibitors. So this is a, a case from UCSF, a 52-year-old male with HIV, CD4 count of 450, undetectable viral load on a Bacavir, Deltegravir, and Lamivudine with skin squamous cell CA. He was enrolled in an AMC-095 trial, so on a checkpoint blockade inhibitor called nivolumab for one year. And he presented to the clinic with fecal incontinence and diarrhea, and the diagnosis was checkpoint inhibitor-associated colitis 
doing point to in, in part to this overactive immune system that you get by releasing the brakes. Uh, so of course they did all of the standard workup, OMPs times three, uh, uh, bacterial cultures, Giardia, et cetera. But this is such a well-known phenomenon now that people are just jumping straight to the, di the diagnosis without necessarily having to do colonoscopy or anything like that. Um, he was stopped, given prednisone, and his symptoms resolved. And finally, CAR T cells are the, uh, the, uh, one of the newest vanguards in immunotherapy. Uh, what you do is somewhat science fiction-y. You uh, basically extract, draw the white blood cells, or so T cells from the cancer patient, you genetically alter the patient's T cells in the lab so that the new T cells can recognize and attack the specific cancer cells in that patient. You ship it off, we actually ship it off to a lab in LA from UCSF where they um, basically replicate millions of CAR T cells in the lab engineered to that patient's specific um, uh, cancer and then uh, it's infused back into the patient and again, what can happen is that you can get these substantial immune-related adverse effects, cytokine release syndrome, which you need to then use some of these other agents like TNF-alpha inhibitors to treat. Very quickly, um, what do you, do you do prior to TNF-alpha inhibitor use in your patients? Well, think about immune reconstitution. What's the CD4 count? What's the TB risk? Uh, what's the endemic mycosis fungus risk? Uh, are they on, on HIV agents that uh, act on hep hepatitis B, and, and you certainly would not want to stop that while they're on, on bi a biologic, and what are, their, are they up to date on their vaccines? I think while they're on biologics, you basically may want to check their viral load a little bit more frequently than you would normally do by guidelines as well as CD4 counts, and, and mainly being vigilant. These are just some of the, you know, I get emails all the time from providers with HIV-infected patients asking about guidance, but there's basically like very little guidance in the literature. We basically, we still don't know a lot about uh, HIV uh, patients on biologics. And um, this is basically the state of the art, less than 30 patients uh, in the literature, but we've been trying to ameliorate that by collectively gathering some of our evidence. So thanks a lot uh, for your attention and uh, I'm free to answer any questions that you have. Yeah, so I think, so that's a great question. The question is basically, what is the advice around vaccinations? Oh, thank you. And the timing of vaccinations? Well, I think a lot of the prep work falls in the, in the realm of us who see the, these patients from day to day. In fact, a typical sort of request you would probably, and many of you have probably gotten this request, is be, will be from the subspecialists like the gastroenterologist or the dermatologist or the um, rheumatologist saying, you know, is your patient ready for biologic? I'm thinking of biologic, what do you do? Well, I think in terms of vaccinations, uh, certainly you think I, I would divide them into live uh, versus non-live vaccines. I think the non-live vaccines 
uh, uh, pretty straightforward. Now we have Shingrix, and I think uh, even though there's not a lot of official guidance around Shingrix in HIV-infected patients, it's only a matter of time, I think, before uh, there will be such guidance. It's, it's pretty much uh, safe. We know that in transplant patients where there's some data already, there's a little bit of data presented meetings in HIV-infected patients as well. Uh, you can pretty much give that, uh, the only thing is with some of these vaccines like Shingrix, you need to give two spaced by two to four months uh, apart, so you'd want to do that timing. Oftentimes there's no emergency for giving a, a TNF-alpha inhibitor or a biologic, so I would, you know, negotiate with the rheumatologist with the patient's symptoms in mind, uh, you know, as much time as possible because you'd also want to do other things. In terms of MMR, uh, you know, you know, there isn't necessarily an uptick with, with that in biologics, but certainly given what's going on, uh, if your CD4 count is over 200, we know that MMR is safe in HIV-infected patients. And in some of the, the more uh, live vaccines, you'd probably want to wait uh, four to eight weeks before the receipt for the minimum of giving a, a TNF-alpha inhibitor. Uh, similar to the guidance we give uh, for other immunosuppressed patients and live vaccines. Of course, many of the live vaccines are not in, uh, are contraindicated in HIV patients, except in the case of MMR, for example, CD4 count over 200, and now with Shingrix and others, you can uh, pretty much give it uh, any time. Okay, we have another question uh, related to uh, thymidine, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, are there any associated infections with tyrosine kinase inhibitors? So, so that's a that's a great uh, question. In terms of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, um, you know, there isn't a specific uptick of, of infectious disease risk. That's not uh, that's different from what we see in the general population. We recently looked at uh, actually 20 years, based on some of this observation that there's not a lot in the literature. Looked at 20 years worth of um, of HIV-infected patients put on biologics uh, in the San Francisco hospitals, and the only sort of difference with the HIV patients uh, on biologics versus not is that they seem to be a little bit more viral blipping, uh, particularly in, pe in, the, in the checkpoint blockade inhibitors, as you would expect with sort of more unchecked immune activation. But it so far doesn't seem to result in any uh, negative consequences. So, so in general, I think, but overall my, my, my main advice is to not take official guidance at face value and to really be vigilant. Many of these uh, optimistic infections and infectious disease complications occur up to years after when people, not, not necessarily in our patient, but years after in terms of when we recognize that there's a signal with a particular agent. Right. Um, I have a question from my own experience, and uh, um, I oftentimes treat patients with HHV8 acute infections, kick syndrome, that sort of thing. Uh, and as we all know, they have very high amounts of IL-6, and there is a monoclonal antibody for that, the siltoximab, which is a chimeric uh, anti-IL-6. Uh, and it's also occasionally used with people who have these uh, immune flare syndromes after CART T-cell mm -hmm. treatments. Um, have you seen any extra infectious diseases 
in those patients? So that's a great question. So in terms of these other uh, biologics, specifically targeting, say, like IL-6, which is on the, you know, the pathway of inflammation, uh, there hasn't really been, a you know, there's been an uptick in autoimmune disease for sure, but not convincing obtusic infections or, or, um, or infections that people have really ascribed to those agents. But theoretically, we would expect that they would be. Part of the problem, I think, is people are not necessarily coming together and pooling what the experience has been. So we just described that zoster or that strep pneumo as something that's community-acquired or expected uh, for any patient, but not, not necessarily linking it to that particular agent, even though there's biologic plausibility. Okay. Now, there are a number of other um, autoimmune uh, diseases that are pseudo-autoimmune diseases that, that tend to show up in people on immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, do you, would you recommend full infectious disease workups for any of the people with uh, or specific organ inflammatory syndromes, uh, myelitis, encephalitis? I think, so that's a great question. So when, when patients are on the, the last two agents, checkpoint blockade inhibitors and CAR T cells, where you're activating and making the immune system really active, the question is, do you proceed with a full infectious disease workup every time somebody comes in with an inflammatory syndrome like colitis or hepatitis? Um, I think some of these syndromes are so uh, part and parcel now of the particular agent in terms of when you saw the agent and when you see it that um, I think in the, the common practice of oncologists, rheumatologists, they're not necessarily doing the full ID workup. For example, in that last case, there was another case that happened like that. They, they just treated the patient with steroids. And I think that's uh, you know, pattern recognition in terms of medicine, but it can also be a dangerous thing because particularly with HIV-infected patients, having these uh, presentations uh, and you giving them steroids because you think it's an inflammatory syndrome, I think it really behooves us to really reel back in a little bit and think a little bit more broadly. Not that you want to break the bank every time somebody comes in with yes. diarrhea, but right. you want to keep your mind open. That colitis could be TB, it could be uh, histoplasmosis, yeah. uh, it could be multiple other optimistic infections that our patients can have. And to sort of like be boxed in by pattern recognition is, is potentially a dangerous uh, pattern that's emerging, and I, I've seen that happen. In fact, I talked about this particular case to one of my uh, rheumatology colleagues who uses immune, immune modulators quite a lot, and he's like, yeah, we, you know, why, why do this whole, uh, send all these things when we know that, um, uh, you know, it's certainly related to the cytokine release syndrome, and, um, you know, again, I think it's a, a little bit of a dangerous move, particularly when you're starting off uh, in an immunocompromised state. I think in the general population, one can be a little bit more maverick about it, maybe, but uh, when somebody's at underlying base risk for optimistic infections or infections in general, uh, I think one has to be a little bit more balanced than that. Right. I know uh, for some of these checkpoint inhibitors, they re recommend doing the C. difficile uh, toxin tests before starting. Uh, let's say nivolumab or something like that. Uh, is that something that you do routinely? And also, what would you do if you had a case where you suspected there was a 
C. diff rather than uh, autoimmune colitis. So in the case of the patient presenting with diarrhea with one of these uh, biologics, you know, certainly, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily stop the biologic for something like C. diff per se. Uh, it depends on, well, I guess stepping back, if, if it is a diagnosis like C. diff, it could be potentially uh, a big change in management for the patient because I think what goes with this pattern recognition of colitis associated with um, cytokine release or an inflammatory syndrome associated with biologic is that people normally also stop the agent that's treating the underlying condition whether or not it's a rheumatologic disease or malignancy. And that interruption might have uh, some detriment as well. So I think, again, in the patient with C. diff, your diagnosis of C. diff wouldn't necessarily stop you from, stop you from using the agent, depending on what agent you're using. You treat the C. diff and treat them throughout. Whether or not you'd give them prophylaxis uh, while on the particular biologic, depends on their particular history of C. diff and whether or not they'd had it before, what were the circumstances as to whether or not you would, would prescribe them some ongoing prophylaxis or preemptive treatment uh, the next time they had diarrhea. But these are all great questions because I think they haven't really been defined by the community and they're all, we're kind of writing history as we see it. And that's part of the, the amazing thing about this particular field, it's almost like the wild, wild west where a lot of people are doing different things and a lot of people are using lots of these different agents. If you Google multi-billion dollar industry, biologics come up as, a, you know, they're, they're like multi-billion dollar drugs right now. So um, again, we have to kind of rein them in a little bit, not saying that we don't have to use them, but we have to understand some of the complications associated with these, the, the widespread and growing use of these agents, particularly if you have baseline immunosuppression. Okay. Um, there's a question here about what criteria you would use to stop biologics in certain infectious diseases. So let's say tuberculosis or a fungal infection or even bacterial infection, would you necessarily stop the biologic? That's a great question. I think for it's a little bit different from an inflammatory response where uh, you're worried that, you know, in fact, some of these inflammatory response syndromes, the first time the CAR T cells were used in, in the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was like a young girl in the ICU. They didn't really understand why the, why the patient was, was crumping. And um, after thinking through the biology, sort of gave her, uh, I think it was an anti-L6 that they gave her, and the patient miraculously uh, came back uh, and was able to be resuscitated. So these inflammatory response syndromes can be quite deadly. But in terms of infectious disease complications, they're not always reasons to stop the particular biologic agent. We see this uh, issue all the time in terms of transplant patients who get opportunistic infections. And the question is, uh, do you have to stop their immunosuppression and risk rejection of an organ because of an opportunistic infection is always a risk balance uh, issue, so it depends on multiple factors. How much room, wiggle room do I have on the biologic? Can I give it a break? Where in the course of the biologic has a patient been? Um, how sick is a patient? Are they, are they having like multi-organ failure associated with uh, disseminated opportunistic infection, in which case I think most people would actually stop it at that point. But I think you know, it, it, it comes down to that patient and, and it's an imprecise sort of art of medicine decision where you weigh risk and benefits and how the sick the patient is, how treatable this particular infection is. If it's a bacterial infection, community-acquired pneumonia, 
I probably wouldn't stop the biologic, but if, it's, if you're in for a long-term treatment like uh, um, invasive mold, aspergillus, uh, you might wanna think about, or mucormycosis, for example, you probably would stop the biologic in that case. Um, as sort of a corollary to that, someone has a question about, are there any agents you would not use in an HIV-positive patient? Just a priori not use. I think the only sort of contraindication, I think there are two, there's also a sub-question with that, which is, which hasn't been answered yet, but one of the questions is, should we start PCP prophylaxis on some HIV-infected patients earlier than we would normally do because they're on a biologic. I think we need more data before that, but some of these cases suggest that that might be a, a factor, or should we be checking CD4 counts more frequently while our HIV patients are on biologics so that we can assess their OI risk more precisely? That's also some guidance that we need. But in terms of um, uh, any uh, absolute contraindications, uh, for stopping, for starting a biologic in HIV-infected patients, I think that from the literature, the only sort of absolute contraindication so far is nivolumab and JC virus. So if patients are, have had PML or they've, they have even antibodies for PML, which, which seems somewhat, somewhat sort of antiquated in terms of assessing that risk, uh, people are not, it's an absolute contraindication for that particular class of biologics. But other than that, it's, uh, you know, people are being very lenient in their use. I, I think CD4 count is something that, again, people are not, don't have a consensus around. I think from the cases that have been published and what we've seen so far in our experience, somewhat, somewhere over a CD4 count of 350 seems to be safe. But that doesn't mean that CD4 count between 200 and 350 is not safe either. It's just that we don't have enough data or experience. Yeah, and uh, perhaps this should be the last question. Um, does a high CD4 count make you less likely to suspect opportunistic infection or more likely to suspect an autoimmune problem? So that's a great question. Does a high CD4 count make you less likely to expect uh, um, an OI versus uh, inflammatory response uh, or autoimmune disease? We certainly, uh, as we can see in the general population who are not immunosuppressed, who are put on these biologics, they still get OIs, but it depends on the specific kind of biologic, which gives you a very specific signal of an OI, particularly mycobacterial disease, viral diseases like uh, VZV, and, 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 and maybe some others that we don't know about as yet. But, so I think the CD4 count is not protective. In fact, it may increase your chances of probably having if you are on a, a checkpoint inhibitor or a, a CAR T cell, a more robust uh, immune activation once you get these agents. But uh, I don't think they would give you any less risk of optimistic infections, which seems specifically linked to these agents independent of the CD4 count. But again, we haven't been using them in patients with low CD4 counts either. So maybe in that population, uh, there would be increased risk. I might uh, add that the AMC in that 095 study that you mentioned uh, are segregating patients by CD4 counts above or below 200, which it may be too low. But in any case, we'll hopefully gather some data from that as well. Great. Thanks, Ron. All right. Well, thank you very much, Peter. We appreciate it.